This is Africa Digest. Welcome to Africa Digest. You're listening to Channel Africa from an African perspective, broadcasting to you from Johannesburg, South Africa. You can find us on www.channelafrica.co.za. My name is Samora Magesi, and I'm in studio with Onelens Nsi, Tracy Boomgaard, as well as Neto Chimani. Top stories on Africa Digest at this hour. Kenya's president, Uhuru Kenyatta, asks his deputy, William Ruto, to resign for verbally attacking the government. Nigeria's President Muhammadu Buhari appeals for calm following reports of intercommunal violence between ethnic groups. And Rwanda Air suspends its flights to Zambia, Zimbabwe and South Africa. Right now though, it's time for your latest news bulletin. Here's Here's SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Thank you, Samora. The chairperson of the State Capture Commission, Deputy Chief Justice Raymond Zondo in South Africa, has recommended to the Constitutional Court to impose a jail term on former President Jacob Zuma for contempt of court. Zuma again failed to appear before the commission, despite the highest court in the land ordering him to do so. Zondo said that if Zuma is allowed to ignore his summons to appear there, there will be lawlessness and chaos in the courts because there may be other people who might follow his example. Zondo says the former president will be given an opportunity to challenge the application. He said Zuma had to no valid or sound reason for not appearing. The commission will make an application to the constitutional court, which is the court that made the order that Mr. Zuma has defied and seek an order that Mr. Zuma is guilty of contempt of court. And if the constitutional court reaches that conclusion, then it is in its discretion what to do. One of the things it can do is to impose a term of imprisonment on Mr. Zuma. Another would be for it to impose a fine. Meanwhile, the Council for the Advancement of the South African Constitution has rejected the basis on which former President Jacob Zuma has chosen not to appear before the State Capture Commission. In a letter, Zuma's lawyers have cited the pending judicial review of Deputy Chief Justice Raymond Zondo's refusal to recuse himself from hearing Zuma's evidence. Additionally, Zuma's lawyers claim that their commission's summons compelling their client to testify was irregularly issued. Kassas, uh, Executive Secretary Lawson Naidu, commented on the letter. Despite what was said in the letter from uh Mr. Zuma's lawyers this morning, it is not up to them to determine whether the summons was lawfully issued or whether it was irregular. That's a matter for the courts to determine. Mm. If Mr. Zuma was being courteous to the commission, he would have brought an application to set aside the summons because it was irregular. He chose not to do that and wants to decide what is uh, lawful and what is not. 
that's not his responsibility. That's the responsibility of uh, the courts in this country. And we are a, a, a country that's premised on the rule of law in terms of our constitution. The detention of Ang- South Africa's Home Affairs Minister Mwagetzi Majoro has relaxed the COVID Lesotho's rather Prime Minister Mwagetzi Majoro has relaxed the COVID-19 lockdown restrictions to allow a host of economic activities to resume. This has made indications that the rate of COVID-19 infections have decreased to 31% from all-time high of 47% last month. Majoro, however, warned that the infection rate was still much higher than the World Health Organization's acceptable rate of 5%. He has urged Basutus to continue observing strict public health regulations including refraining from unnecessary travel, wearing face masks at all times in public and maintaining social distancing. Lesotho had been on a hard lockdown since January 14. Lastly, soldiers in Myanmar are reported to be firing rubber bullets in the central city of Mandalay. Social media posts show wounded demonstrators and the sound of gunshots. The military, which seized power in a coup two weeks ago, has been boosting its presence across Myanmar in the past 24 hours. The government has also announced harsh punishment for people challenging its rule. The BBC's Jonathan Hitz reports. The detention of Aung San Suu Kyi is also reported to have been extended. People have still come out to protest in front of government offices this morning, trying to persuade civil servants to join the nationwide civil disobedience movement. But anxiety over what the military will do next to try to crush the movement is everywhere. Channel African News, I am Onelins SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Kenya's President Uhuru Kenyatta has for the first time asked his deputy William Ruto to resign for verbally attacking the government. But Ruto, who has been holding public rallies to extract to attract voters rather ahead of presidential elections next year, says come what may, he will not resign. James Shimanula reports. With 17 months remaining before a presidential election is held in Kenya, political temperatures are rising high. More than 20 presidential contestants are expected to announce their candidacy for the presidency in the coming days ahead of President Uhuru Kenyatta's second term in office coming to an end in August next year. Already Kenya's Deputy President William Ruto has announced that he will contest the 2022 presidency. And to prove that he is a serious presidential contestant, Ruto has started holding political campaign rallies in various parts of the country, ignoring President Kenyatta's appeal to stop drumming up for support from voters because the official time of campaign has not been announced. It may be important to note that Ruto and Kenyatta have been at loggerheads for nearly three years. Ruto opposes the Building Bridges Initiative in short BBI, derived from March 2018 historic handshake between Kenyatta and opposition leader Raila Odinga. BBI was set up to bring together Kenya's competing ethnic groups under a new national ideology and a better system of government. Understandably, that was the idea agreed between Kenyatta and his new ally, 
Odinga in the handshake. A comprehensive report on BBI is currently undergoing approval by Kenya's 47 county assemblies before paving the way for a referendum and finally the creation of posts of Prime Minister and two deputies ahead of presidential election. Ruta opposes the BBI report in its entirety, apparently believing that it may change several important clauses of the country's constitution. He believes that BBI will pave the way for Odinga to become president in next year's presidential election. It is Ruto's opposition to the BBI report that has caused his political clash with President Kenyatta and Kenyan politicians supporting the BBI report. This past weekend, at different public rallies, President Kenyatta and Ruto were locked in an exchange of verbal political attacks. Speaking at one of the rallies in Kiswahili, interspersed with the English, Kenyatta said, You use your mouth to say the government is bad, and you use the same mouth to say we have worked as a government. How many governments do we have? Adding a rider in English on what he said in Kiswahili, Kenyatta said. We are either together or we are apart. Kenyatta asked Ruto to resign for verbally attacking the government and asserted that at the end of his presidential term in August next year, he will not hand over power to a person that will divide the Kenyans on tribal lines. But Ruto said... He will not resign, apparently flashing back to a criminal case in which he and the Kenyatta faced more than eight years ago at the International Criminal Court in The Hague, Netherlands, Ruto retorted. When Uhuru Kenyatta needed a friend to stand with him at the critical moment, we are the people who stood with him. That was Kenya's Deputy President William Ruto. Speaking at a public rally in eastern Kenya, Ruto was heckled to a point where he was forced to cut short his speech centered on the Building Bridges Initiative, BBI, which I have highlighted at the beginning of this story. Now take a listen to the people heckling Ruto as he asked them to reject BBI and the very same people shouting at the top of their voices that they will support the BBI. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. Nigeria's President Muhammadu Buhari has appealed for calm following reports of intercommunal violence between ethnic groups in the southwestern state of Oyo. Clashes between traders from Yoruba and Hausa ethnic groups broke out on Saturday at Shasha Market in Ibadan, the capital of Oyo State. Tensions have increased in southwestern states in recent weeks amid claims by public figures. Uh, that nomadic cattle herders from the mainly northern Fulani ethnic group are carrying out violent crimes, which the pastoralites uh, have denied. Many of the herders have moved south in search for dwindling grazing land. To get some insight on what could have triggered the latest clash, Channel Africa spoke to Bridget Osakwe, the Nigeria coordinator for the West African Network for Peacebuilding Group. What we have just related is a trigger. 
In conflict terms, we'll have the trigger, we'll have the toxic factors, and we'll have all that. But what happens here is just a trigger because the policy is already tense. The environment is tense. There is this perception based on ethnic alienation or affiliation or ethnic misconception that is around in Nigeria. On one hand, some people believe that every house is related to Fulani. Some other people believe that every Fulani is a Muslim. That is assumption. And so, when people see a, a Fulani person, they think that they are killers. There is this popular word that is going around about the Fulani people carrying 1847 around. So, there is this perception about the Fulani person now misconstrued to be the house person being a killer. And that they are killing with impunity. And that whatever they do, they do it with impunity. So without bias, without misconception at the back of the mind, so whatever anybody does that is from that instruction, it is read, uh, uh, either read or rated out of or misconstrued out of sentence. Because from what we are hearing, that it all started from tomato that fell from a carriage and the house man picked the tomato. He didn't finish picking them. He left some. And then the woman, the owner of the shop said, come and pick the remaining one. Clear up your, clear up your debt. And then he refuses. You know, those kind of little arguments that would have been resolved ordinarily became an issue. Now, That's what important. needs to happen, Bridget, in order to change those perceptions that you spoke about? Because clearly the divisions along ethnic lines are deep-rooted in the country. What needs to happen in order to change those perceptions? For me, first of all, Politicians need to eschew policies of hatred because when they do politics, they deliberately divide the people along political lines and ethnic lines. So policies of hatred, they should be very careful how they divide people. It is deliberate. Then I think that it is political gimmick. Because for me, all these are towards, during towards 2023 elections. The second one is that our leaders, if they are sincere, they should inspire confidence in everybody, including me. And I'm not, I no longer have confidence in my country. I am no longer safe to say, or proud to say, I am a Nigerian. And the third thing is that they should guarantee justice. You are talking about uh, a need for leaders who inspire confidence. We know that President Muhammadu Buhari has appealed on Twitter to religious and traditional leaders as well as elected leaders to join hands with the federal government to ensure that communities in their domain are not splintered along ethnic and other primordial lines. Is the statement on Twitter by President Buhari enough, do you think? In my personal opinion, it's not enough. Because communication involves both the spoken word and the body language. I do not think that those Twitter statements are enough. The government needs to do more. The National Assembly needs to do more. But for the the National Assembly, their own argument is that they are representing their people and the views of their people. So they carry that perception of their people in the parliament. And so it is important that the government, where everybody is pointing hands to, 
Let's talk about the role of Nigeria's security forces in these divisions. So we know that Nigeria's security forces are already stretched by armed gangs of kidnappers in the northwest and an Islamist militant insurgency in the northeast. Surely this will make the job of the law enforcement officials even tougher, isn't it? Very, very tough. It's been said that the the insurgencies that they have more arms than the <laughs> than the law enforcement agents, and they are well trained. They are more trained. They have more arms and more organized. It goes back again to inspiring leadership that we are talking about. It took the executives how many uh, for how long to replace the service chief when they were not working even the national assembly everybody shouted replace this service chief replace this they were not replaced even now that they are replaced what do you expect from them they take order from the president until the president is ready to face and be honest with the issues at hand i do not think that we, even the emphasis there was uh, last year Late last year, there was this issue about um, yeah, police recruiting more, more men and women, army recruiting. But I've not seen, they have been saying that over how many months now, they are not recruiting. We are not seeing, they were talking about recruiting, we are not seeing any. The security forces themselves are challenged. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. We call upon church leaders to really cooperate with government. It is the church which can help us to stop this crisis. The church should not contribute to this crisis negatively. We are calling upon our church leaders to listen to our premiers, our mayors, and the president. Let's work together to reduce the spread of this uh, virus. South Africa, it is possible. We are here because unity of purpose is necessary channel africa welcome to change your game on channel africa the african perspective we are coming to you from johannesburg right here in south africa i'm asanda beda your host Change Your Game, the program that promotes open discussion and social dialogue as we highlight real issues in the African entrepreneurship ecosystem. Trevor Mumba now joins us in studio to talk about his entrepreneurial and personal journey. Welcome to Change Your Game, Trevor. Thank you so much. Um, it's an honor to be here. Palesa Mukubong, who's a designer. Welcome, Palesa, to Change Your Game. Thank you. Your role at the fourth annual Fashion Without Borders event? I just know that I need to arrive and, and, <laughs> okay. and do my part and do it really, really well. Yeah. Amnesty International says the COVID-19 pandemic has plunged South Africa's schools further into crisis, exposing how the country's education system continues to be shaped by the legacy of apartheid. In a new report titled Failing to Learn... Uh, lessons the impact of COVID-19 on a broken and unequal education system. The organization highlights how students from poorer communities have been cut off from education during extended school closures in a country where just 10% of households have an internet connection. 
The organization says the report is based on an extensive desk research, including analyses of statistical data and institutional studies and surveys between March 2020 and February 2021. To discuss this further, we spoke to Ian Byrne from Amnesty International, and he has more. Well, the report builds on a report actually we issued just over a year ago on 11th of February 2020, uh, when we were able to kind of spend a couple of years actually going around the country looking at how unequal the education system is, and particularly in terms of infrastructure. And we visited, uh, I think, 38 schools, spoke to nearly 300 uh, people, including obviously learners, teachers, parents, experts, civil society. Um, and in that report, we showed really that on infrastructure, thousands of schools are really struggling uh, with uh, degraded buildings, unsafe buildings, overcrowded classrooms, sometimes up to 70 kids in a classroom, sure. lack of decent sanitation, lack of running water. And of course, all of these things are exacerbated during COVID, aren't they? Because it, you, it's very difficult to socially distance when you've got that amount of overcrowding. When you don't have running water, how can people uh, stay safe in terms of the virus? Uh, so we wanted to really revisit that report but look at it in terms of COVID. And you know, we do acknowledge that, as with all governments, including my own here in the UK, uh, the South African government has faced many challenges with COVID and trying to deliver education. But we think for a lot of kids, it's a double whammy, as you said, because they've often not been able to get sure. any remote learning, any remote learning that the better schools have been able to offer. And also, at the same time, those schools, the poorer schools, are going to struggle to be COVID safe when they reopen. Yeah. Now, I mean, you've rightfully highlighted that uh, all of these issues are exacerbated by the pandemic. You know, they're not necessarily uh, created by the pandemic. In your research, did you delve into some of the mechanisms that have been put in place uh, uh, to um, assist in this regard or bridge the gap? And what have you found there? Well, I think, again, it's fair to say, you know, there has been um, some efforts by the government. Uh, for example, I know that they've teamed up, I think, with SABC, to provide some uh, radio and TV offering to to kids, but uh, the coverage seems to be quite limited, quite patchy. So lots of kids are just missing out uh, completely. Again, and it's not just us saying this, as I said, because we're drawing on um, what South Africans themselves have been saying, and particularly parliamentarians in the middle of last year were already expressing concern that not enough uh, PPE, not enough sanitation, is being sent out uh, to schools at the same time. So, you know, there are guidelines in place. We recognise that. And again, you know, the government has obviously had a plan whereby it's kind of, you know, reopened schools, but often reopened schools prematurely. And in fact, there was a big survey issued by a number of teaching unions just at the beginning of January this year, which said over half of the schools surveyed, (coughs) excuse me, there was over 7,000 of them, uh, were not confident about the safety of their schools, the school principals. And I think that really reflects where a lot of South African schools are at the moment. Uh, I think the, the, the schools are reopening today, I think, uh, in South Africa. That was the yes, plan yes. after numerous delays. Yeah, after numerous delays, um, it will be interesting. And obviously, we want kids to get an education. Um, but, but it, you know, unless you put the resources in over time, and as I said, a lot of these are historic problems, then you are going to end up with this. And during the pandemic, we actually saw infrastructure grants being diverted uh, by the government uh, at a time when schools really needed this help. 
And uh, um, uh, finally, does the report um, offer any recommendations um, around how to deal um, with these issues that you've highlighted? Well, I think we recognise, obviously, that Amnesty International, that we are not um, public health experts. Uh, we are not pedagogues and education experts, but we do look um, to recommendations that's also been made, for example, by uh, UN human rights experts, uh, UNICEF and others. So, look, schools need to have and uh, what we recommend is the resources that they need to be as safe as they can be. Um, and that includes dealing with immediate infrastructure concerns, so not having classes of 60 to 70 kids as well as having sufficient resources on PPV and sanitation. And I think uh, exploring more innovative ways to guarantee uh, remote learning. I mean, I think in other countries in Africa, Kenya, that they have used low-tech solutions such as radio. And that has been explored in South Africa, but the coverage has been quite patchy. Obviously, over the longer term, the country does need to scale up the internet coverage. As you said, only 10% of households have those. I think only about 20% have access to any kind of technology at the same time. And again, this just deepens the unequal divide between better resource schools, often private schools, where kids mm, have been able mm. to get remote learning during this time. But a lot of kids, and I think it's estimated 300,000 primary school kids have effectively dropped out of education. Obviously, we want to see those kids coming back in. Uh, but also at the other end, you know, a lot of kids are not matriced. So they're not in a position where they can go on to anything. Um, so they need to be supported. Uh, obviously, again, it's going to be a challenge to repeat the whole year. Uh, but the government you know, needs to be uh, listening to different stakeholders in the system and coming up with strategies, I think, that are both innovative, but also recognize the large unequal divide, as we said, you know, particularly in terms of infrastructure that has been plaguing the system for decades. And obviously this predates, you know, the end of apartheid. But a lot of these schools are still struggling with that inequality. Well, Ian, for those who'd like to take a deeper look into this uh, um, report, uh, where do they find it? So the report is available uh, on our website at www.amnesty.org and you can uh, find it there. We've got an op-ed coming out, myself and Shinella Mohammed, who's the director that will be coming out in the Mail and Guardian uh, later on today. Uh, and finally, if I can plug it, we've actually got a webinar uh, this afternoon at 5.30 South African time hosted by the Mail and Guardian, uh, where I will be part of a panel debating some of these findings. That was Ian Byrne, researcher and advisor at Amnesty International, on the line talking to Zikona Muso. As the COVID-19 pandemic rages on, many sectors are reconsidering their priorities. Rwanda Air is one such that has suspended its flights to Zambia, Zimbabwe and South Africa. But Zambia is, however, determined to launch its airline this year. However, the decision by Zambia, a country which is highly indebted and defaulted in euro bond payment last year, raises fears from stakeholders over its plans, as Arthur Davis Sikopo, our Zambia correspondent, now reports from the capital, Lusaka. Any global pandemic has serious threats on economies and general development of societies. The aviation industry has not been spared with the COVID-19 pandemic that is ravaging societies around the world. One critical hit is the air business that has seen airlines suspend their services as the COVID-19 hits even harder. 
Rwanda Air has with immediate effect as of 8th February 2021 suspended its flights to Zambia, Zimbabwe and South Africa amid concerns in the rise of COVID-19 cases in the countries. Announcing the suspension, Rwanda Air cites increasing number of COVID-19 cases and says it wishes to safeguard its citizens from the deadly pandemic. On the other hand, as airlines ground their flights, Zambia is still in high gear pushing for its relaunch of its national carrier, the Zambia Airways. The airline is scheduled to be run by the Zambian government, working together with Ethiopian Airlines. But this comes as a concern from stakeholders like aviation expert Captain Charles Musenge. Captain Musenge, who has spent over 30 years in the industry, advises government to put its plans on hold as it is not attainable at this stage, especially that the country is also in high debt. Zambia last year defaulted starting to pay back its loans or bonds, deferring them to six months later meaning the country will only start paying back its bonds this year. This is not just an African airline scenario. European and American airlines have faced similar closures or their governments have had to bail them out with billions of dollars to keep them flying. This is not the time for Zambia to launch a national airline with or without Ethiopian Airlines. The Zambia-Ethiopian Airlines Alliance will not save Zambia well. Ask Air Malawi. Zambia, for example, is heavily in debt and has no capital for such a venture. And Opposition Movement for Democratic Change, MDC, through Tawakawana, its media director, is however insisting that the Zambian government needs to listen to stakeholders as the undertaking would not be easy if they went ahead. Any iota of success in running an airline that existed in 2017 before COVID-19 hit the global economy has since been wiped out. Hence, the need to revisit the decision in light of the significantly challenged circumstances which make this investment luxurious and merely flamboyant. Transport and Communications Minister Mutote Kafoya is concerned that some stakeholders advising government today were in government and were part of the formulation of the deal to have Zambian Airways relaunched. Mr. Mototeka Foya, the transport minister, points out opposition MDC leader Felix Mutati as being hypocritical for now not supporting the relaunching of the airline that he was part of. The IDC, who is one of the investors in the airline, is an institution under Ministry of Finance where he was minister for close to two years. What was his view then, both in cabinet and at the Ministry of Finance, because he has to have a conversation with the institution which is investing in the airline. When you change your mind, you need to be principled. You need to be able to say, what my position was, was this, and now it is this because of that. So I'm actually disappointed that Honorable Mutati can use the words he used, flamboyant, can't be supported, and so on. And Captain Musenge now gives advice to the Zambian government. When the time is right and Zambia has a leadership with the will and the ability to utilize existing aviation skills, then full consideration for the national career will be made. Zambia must, not, must look inwards for the formation of the national career. We have the necessary manpower. Reporting for Channel Africa in Lusaka, Zambia. I'm Arthur Davis, Skopo. It's now time for your latest news headlines. Here's Onelinsinski.
SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Chairperson of the State Capture Commission, Deputy Chief Justice Raymond Zondo in South Africa, has recommended to the Constitutional Court to impose a jail term on former President Jacob Zuma for contempt of court. Leaders of the G5 Sahel are to attend the two-day summits in the Chadian capital in Jamena, with French President Emmanuel Macron attending via video link. And state media in China says the authorities have arrested 70 people suspected of distributing fake coronavirus vaccines. Channel African News, I am Onilin Sinsi. SABC News, independent and impartial. From an African perspective. South Africa has joined the rest of the global community today in marking the International Childhood Cancer Day. The South African Bone Marrow Registry is using the opportunity to call for more awareness around the warning signs of childhood cancers as early detection can save lives. To discuss this further, we're joined on the line by Zahir Isaacs, the search coordinator for the registry. Zahir, thank you very much for joining us. Hi, good afternoon. Is it known how many children are diagnosed with cancer every year in South Africa? In South Africa, uh, between 800 to 1,000 children are diagnosed with with a blood cancer or a a solid tumor cancer every year. And how easy or difficult is childhood cancer to prevent or screen in comparison to adult cancers? there's, you know, there's a lot of stigmas attached with cancer. And then um, in, in the world, uh, there's a treatable cure rate is between 70 to 80% in well-resourced countries. In South Africa, unfortunately, our cure rate is standing at about 50%, simply because, um, you know, not everybody has access to health care. And then um, even though we have an established oncology health care service, the infrastructure is also overburdened and then it's also further impeded by low cancer awareness in the primary healthcare settings. Um, so the service delivery challenges are huge. And does South Africa have enough resources to provide adequate care for children with cancer? There is enough resources on a tertiary level and, I mean, especially with childhood cancers, it, it, it is a treatable disease. Um, I just don't know. Unfortunately, I think more awareness is needed and knowing what the early warning signs are is vital in order for treatment to commence as soon as possible. I think, unfortunately, among certain local ethnic groups, there's still a lot of stigma and myths around uh, childhood cancers, you know. Some people think cancers um, that you can catch it from somebody else. Mm. And what are the early warning signs of childhood cancers and that the public should learn more about? I think um, first I need to say that the most common cancers for children are leukemias and lymphoma. With leukemia, it's a rise in the number of white cells in the body. And about a quarter of children that has cancer usually has a leukemia. The early symptoms for that is tiredness, bone and joint pain, weakness, ease bleeding of, or bruising. Sometimes the gums bleeds or recurrent nose bleeds. Sometimes you have swollen lymph nodes in the neck or anywhere else. 
fever and then also unexplained weight loss. With lymphomas, that is more solid tumor. It is, begins in the lymph glands. It can be in the spleen, the thymus gland, and in the bone marrow. It can affect other organs throughout the body. There you have to look out for maybe painless swelling of lymph nodes in the neck, armpits, or groin. Persistent tiredness, fever, night sweats, weight loss, and maybe an itchy skin. I think the key word is persistence. If a symptom for a child persists, it's important to to get help or to find out, is it something more than just um, a normal ailment? Right. And uh, would we say that South Africa has enough resources to, to, to tackle these childhood cancers? I think we do. Right. Could you give us more details about the requirements for one to be a bone marrow donor? Oh yeah. Um, for most of these children, the gold standard of treatment is a stem cell transplant. I like to say stem cell because people still think uh, to become a bone marrow donor, we're going to drill in your bones and take the bone marrow out. The procedure is extremely simple. It is like um, giving platelets. They put a needle in your arm. Your blood goes in the machine and the machine separates your stem cells, which is then transplanted to the patient. And that can be a lifeline. To become a donor, it's as easy as going on our website at sabmr.co.za. There's a drop-down menu to become a donor. We will courier the kit to your home. You do your mouth swaps, you send it back to us, and then we send it off for DNA analysis and you become a registered donor. The problem in South Africa, Um, especially for children of color, is that we do not have enough donors of color on the registry. Uh, But it's not just a problem here, it's a problem throughout the world. 70% of the 38 million donors in the world is actually white. So yeah, if if anybody of color gets ill, to find a matching donor becomes a mighty task. All right, well, uh, Zahir, thank you very much for joining us. That's my pleasure. And that was Zahir Isaacs, Search Coordinator for the South African Bone Marrow Registry. Hundreds of international truck drivers are marooned at Kazungula border following the breakdown of one of the two operating pontoons. The drivers have been stranded nearly two weeks are now calling on authorities to commission the bridge to bring to an end some of their problems. Hilda Akekelwa reports. Southern African Development Community Truck Drivers Association of Zambia, Secretary General Salim Wamnyema, has raised concern that drivers have been stuck at the border between Zambia and Botswana for more than a week because only one pontoon is operating. He explained that about 50 drivers have had their COVID-19 certificate expire as they remain stuck at the border. He also expressed fears that some may in the process contract COVID-19, saying it's not healthy for many drivers to be in one place for several days amidst COVID-19. Mr. Omenyema said drivers are eagerly waiting for the commissioning of the Kazungula Bridge to avoid travel disturbances similar to the one they find themselves in. We have a problem with the pontoon which has been down for almost two weeks now. I've engaged the, actually the managing director who assured me this morning that they'll be sending the, the spare parts, uh, meaning today or tomorrow, 
and they should have the the, the pontoon running uh, uh, this coming which that is awfully because I mean they have always been telling us that uh, they are bringing the spare part and uh, they've not they have not brought it and uh, the other challenge that we have now is the certificate the expiring of the certificates as you are aware that drivers are tested for COVID-19 and are issued the certificate to allow them to travel so we have a number of drivers whose uh, uh, COVID certificate uh, they have expired, so which means now they have to pay twice Zambia here in Zambia, and they, if they have to be retested, obviously they, they should be retested in Botswana. So that is will be another extra expense, unexpected. And an official from the Engineering Services Corporation at Kazungula, Jonathan Kasonde, confirmed that one of the pontoons has not been working for more than a week. He, however, explained that his spare part to replace the full one on the ferry has been procured and the pontoon is expected to resume operation this week. Uh, the challenge that we have is uh, we are waiting for the gears. The, the gears have been paid for and the supplier promised us that this, this weekend they will be in. I'm sure by Monday uh, next week the pontoon should be up and running. Over the years Zambia has been operating two pontoons to ferry trucks and travelers across the river. The vessels are however old and have been breaking down several times. For a while, Botswana beefed up the fleet with one pontoon. In early 2018, hundreds of trucks on both sides of the river were marooned following the breakdown of the Botswana pontoon. Long queues were seen as there was only one pontoon that remained functional for more than two weeks. At that time, the drivers were concerned with their prolonged stay, saying the place has no proper sanitation facilities for them to use, especially at night. They called on authorities to hasten the construction of the Kazungula Bridge, which is expected to ease the movements of goods and people across the Zambezi River. Now, that the construction of the multi-million dollar bridge is done, the drivers are calling for its commissioning. My name is uh, Jonathan Conwela Nibanda. I did my test in Livingstone. Actually, even today is my last day of my COVID test certificate expiry. And then we are not nowhere, anywhere near to crossing. We understand that the bridge is almost done. And we are quite happy that this, what we are passing through, could be a thing of the past soon uh, upon the, uh, the opening of the bridge. But still, we've got these uh, challenges of the COVID situation. And then uh, periodically we are doing tests from point A to point B. Just now, I don't know when I'll cross. But when I go to Botswana side, they also have to verify my test and then make me retest. My name is Morgan Lukere. I'm from South Africa. We tested yesterday in uh, this uh, COVID, but uh, we never get results now. So that's why we, I'm still here. I've got papers, but I'm still waiting for the results. I had uh, the certificate for Botswana, yes. They said it's about 72 hours. So I spent here in Zambia about two weeks now. Uh, uh, the solution that uh, the problem that we are facing here at Kazungula border post, more especially Botswana side, 
The pontoon is just one which is working. Now, our concern is what is happening with our bridge? Was the bridge is done? Why can't they allow, you know, why can't they open it so that we, we can start using it? If you've got an opportunity, we can ask you to cross over to that side, Botswana side. You see the queue which is there. Almost 10 kilometers away and there's no water. You know, that is a park. There are elephants, there are lions, you know, all kinds of animals. There's no water, no bathing, no what. So please, we are asking for the government at least to do something over this bridge so that at least we can be crossing fast. You can imagine I left home, I think, uh, last month, but I'm still here. Reporting for Channel Africa from Livingstone in Zambia, I am Hilda Kekelwa. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. We call upon church leaders to really cooperate with government. It is the church which can help us to stop this crisis. The church should not contribute to this crisis negatively. We are calling upon our church leaders to listen to our premiers, our mayors, and the president. Let's work together to reduce the spread of this uh, virus. South Africa, it is possible. We are here because unity of purpose is necessary. Channel Africa. It's now time for your latest economics news. Here's Tracy Boomgard. Thank you, Samora. The World Trade Organization will make history when it selects Nigeria's Dr. Ngozi Okonjo-Iwela as its next Director General for a four-year term. The confirmation of the former Nigerian finance minister and global economist will make her the first woman and first African to lead the WTO. Sherman Brass-Pease reports. While history is in the offing, Dr. Konjo Iwiala will take the helm of an organization responsible as an arbiter of global trade at a time of rising uncertainty due to the coronavirus pandemic and the devastating impacts it has wrought in the global trading system, the movement of goods, and the palpable rise in protectionism between countries and regions. The United States had initially sought to block her appointment late last year, despite her clear support from a majority of member states. An obstacle removed earlier this month when the new administration of President Joe Biden expressed strong support for her candidacy. The reform-minded Okonjo Ibuyala will have to hit the ground running in an organization known for its dysfunction, particularly in resolving disputes between countries. Nigeria's economic recovery for 2021 does not look good. This is according to the International Monetary Fund. The IMF says recovery is expected to be weak, with growth expecting to turn positive at 1.5%. The IMF has had to alter its forecasts frequently as the COVID-19 pandemic ravaged global economies. The National Union of Namibian Workers says it will demonstrate against the closing of Air Namibia and are calling for the resignation of Public Enterprises Minister Leon Yuster. The country's biggest union says the demonstration is planned for Wednesday and is in a bid to reverse the closure of the country state airline. 
State media in China say authorities have arrested 70 people suspected to distributing fake coronavirus vaccines. They have also asked the public for help in uncovering such crimes. Vaccine scandals have long been a problem in China. The BBC's Celia Hatton reports. In one high-profile case a few years ago, a woman sold $90 million in illicit vaccines across China that hadn't been refrigerated, infuriating the public. Similar crimes are happening again. One group of suspects is reported to have made a profit of almost $3 million by bottling saline solution or mineral water and selling it as a coronavirus vaccine. In other cases, fake doses were smuggled abroad or sold for exorbitant prices. China's top court has urged prosecutors across the country to do more to stop vaccine traffickers. Latest figures show that the Japanese economy contracted by 4.8% last year, although a recovery continued in the last quarter. The BBC's Andrew Walker has the details. The damage done to the Japanese economy by the pandemic last year was very substantial, but not as severe as the hardest-hit economies in Europe. There was a deep downturn in the second quarter and then a recovery in the following six months, which partially reversed the decline. 2021 has, however, got off to a difficult start with a new state of emergency, which is weighing down on economic activity. On the country's stock exchange, the Nikkei climbed to a level that it last reached three decades ago, though it's still short of the all-time high of 1989. One US dollars trading at 377.14 Nigerian Naira, 10.73 Botswana Pula, 108.51 Kenyan Shilling and 21.59 Zambian Kwacha. The dollar's trading at 5.36 Brazilian hail, 73.61 Russian ruble, 72.49 Indian rupee, 6.45 Chinese yuan, and at 14.52 South African rand. The US dollar is also trading at 72 pence to the British pound and 82 cents to the euro. Gold is trading at $1,816, platinum at $1,278 per ounce, while Brent crude oil is at $63.40 rather a barrel. For Channel Africa News, I'm Tracy Bumgard. And now for your sport, here's Netwatch Money. Thank you, Samara. From the sports desk, a very good afternoon. Starting off with cricket news. South Africa spinner Tabrayiz Shamsi has grabbed a career-best second position among bowlers while Pakistan wicket-keeper batsman Mohamed Rizwan has raced to 42nd place in the T20 international player rankings after standout performances in the three-match series that Pakistan won 2-1. Tabrayiz Shamsi's series topping six wickets, which included a haul of four for 25 in the final match, helped the left-arm wrist spinner overtake Australia 
Elias Adam Zampa, England's Adil Rashid and Afghanistan's Mujib Ariyur Rahan, to within three points of top-ranked Rashid Khan of Afghanistan. On to football news. Kenyan champions Gomahia have an uphill task of trying to overturn a first-leg loss suffered in the hands of Zambia's Napsa Stars in the CAF Confederations Cup group stage qualifier first-leg match at Nyayo National Stadium in Nairobi on Sunday. Channel Africa's Francis Mudegi reports. The Kenyan champions were beaten 1-0 by the Zambian stars that fielded one of former Gormahia stars, David Owino. The Kenyan champions came up against the Zambian pensioners seeking a convincing win to take to the return leg, but it was not a case they could take as Daniel Adoko punished them with a thunderbolt in the 86th minute for the 1-0 advantage. The coach of NAPSA stars is Mohamed Fadi. When you play away game, you have to build the pressure on the opponent. So when time going and they are not scoring, we know the last 10-15 minutes, the concentration will go down and the adrenaline to be high. So this is why uh, we took our chances there. He is now working on the return match. Gurmahia is a big team. They have big experience. Um, the regular uh, uh, team uh, in CAF, uh, Continental. Uh, but uh, every game is, uh, is different. And uh, we also club can make difference. Uh, in this competition. For Channel Africa Sports in Arabi Kenya, I'm Francis Mutegi. His captain, Dixon Chapa, is elated but not getting carried away ahead of the return fixture that they will host in Zambia. Gomaya, it's a organized club, a good history, and we are not going to take anything from them. But even for us, as Napsa Stars, we want to write history and we want to achieve something. So we are here also to make history and we are going to do the job in the ground. Kamahia had hoped for a better result, having failed to make it to the group stage of Africa's second tired lap competition last season after losing to daring lap Madama Pembe from the Democratic Republic of Congo 3-2 on aggregate. The head coach of Kamahia at the moment is Carlos Manuel Vaz Pinto. The goal was our defender give the ball for, uh, for the, the player of Napsa. But this happens sometimes in football. And uh, of course, uh, we want uh, more ball than we have today, but we have a lot. But I think we can, we can do better. But uh, everything can happen in, in Zambia. And finally, in cycling news, the Rwanda Cycling Federation, Ferrasi, has announced that the national cycling team, Team Rwanda Cycling, will start a training at the end of March, ahead of Tour de Rwanda 2021. The annual Continental Cycling Contest was initially slated from February the 21st to the 28th, but was eventually rescheduled from May the 2nd to the 9th due to the spike in coronavirus cases. Despite the pandemic, cyclists did not stop training with their respective clubs to maintain their form and fitness. According to Ferrasi president, Abdallah Morenzi, selected cyclists will join the national team's camp at the end of March to start training together. For Channel Africa Sport, I'm Neto and Itio Chamani.
This is Africa Digest. And that is how we wrap up this hour of Africa Digest. Be sure to join us again from 1900 hours Central African time for more news from an African perspective. Taking us to the top of the hour is African Sunset by Miriam Makeba. Si yo lo volan a nina, 
Oh, my God. 